Good morning. As Pastor Chad said, my name is Jeremy Lobdell. I'm delighted to be speaking with you this morning. I am originally from Missouri, which if you're unfamiliar is the home of Mark Twain and some other uh, notorious or notable people like Brad Pitt and uh, Jesse James and uh, Cheryl Crow and some others. So if that doesn't ring a bell, Mississippi River, St. Louis Blues, or St. Louis Cardinals, Kansas City Chiefs, stuff like that. So, uh, and also me. I'm from Missouri as well. So you've never heard of me, but here I am. My name is Jeremy. My wife's name is Robin. We have three children, two boys and one little girl. The two boys and the little girl keep our hands very full, five, seven, and one, or seven, five, and one. And so uh, we're actively engaged in many things at this time in our lives and also in ministry as well. As Pastor Chad said, I'm a teaching associate pastor uh, on a temporary residence in, uh, at Northview. I've been there for the last two years. And uh, at this, on this evening, actually, another church will be voting to decide whether I will be their uh, lead teaching pastor or not. So uh, my wife is uh, excited about that. I am as well, but we're each awaiting the call for our own reasons. Me for a cool job and her for, oh boy, i got to pack. So we'll uh, pray for her, please, as we transition, and for me as well. Um, we're thankful for this time that we've had in Canada, learning all about a new place and enjoying the beautiful, beautiful area. Um, Please look at me in the eyes for just a moment, because I want to make a statement to you, and I want you to see how sincere I am in saying so. Um, Today, I want to give you the single most important sermon that you've ever heard in your entire life. I'm serious. Not just because it's me. But because, in fact, everything that you believe, all of Christianity, everything you know to be true, hangs or falls on this one fact. In fact, if what I say to you today is not true, then it's an absolute waste of time. It's a complete farce. It's a fairy tale. And we should stop giving our money. Sorry, Pastor Chad. Start going, stop going to church and go home. Because this whole thing is a complete waste of time. But if what I'm saying to you today is true, then it should absolutely change every single aspect of your entire life. What then I will talk about today is a doctrine which has a fancy name, but we will explain it throughout the entire service. And then we will not only explain it, but we're also going to prove it, and then we're going to apply it. So I think um, what you have in your bulletins might do it in a little bit of a different order. That's because I was late in sending my sermon outline in. But what I'm going to do today is hopefully answer the question for you. What is the Trinity? What is it? And how does it affect my life? How does it impact me? And the way we're going to do that is we're just going to move through three simple steps. And those steps are basically define it, prove it, and then apply it. So what I want to do today is just walk through those three things to you, define it, prove it, and then apply it. What difference does it make? So in order to do so, I think when I I talk about the term the Trinity, um, I I may come to you and I may ask you, what is the Trinity? And initially you may 
stumble a little bit and have a little trouble explaining it. And I have a feeling it probably looks something like this. This is me working with Ezra, my children. please define for me the doctrine of the Trinity. The God, the... Just a bit. That's how it goes, probably, I imagine, with most of us. When I say, what is the Trinity? And you're like, uh, God, uh, something, hold on just a minute. Let me ask my pastor. Hang on. But what I want today, by the end of the service, is that if I see you next week going through Chilliwack or at the grocery store or something, and I say, hey, in the grocery store aisle, please, define for me the doctrine of the Trinity. I want you to be able to say it like this. Ezra, please define for me the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but they're all God. Very good. Zion, please tell me the doctrine that states that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. I can say communion. Very good. Boys, what is the chief end of man? Glory for God and enjoy him forever. All right, you got it? If a five-year-old at that time and a uh, three-year-old can do it, I think you can do it too. So when I see you walking down the aisle at the next grocery store or something like that, I'm going to say, please define for me the doctrine of the Trinity. And you're going to say, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are all fully God. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, and we affirm the hypostatic union according to the definition of Chalcedon. Got it? Got it. Okay, good. We'll work on that here in a little bit. Um, basically, what that means is this, is I'll, I will work my way through that and try to explain it to you, but I assure you, you can do it because I've taught this to other people before and I've had very elderly ladies who are entirely retired and they are in the uh, beauty salon and having the hair dryers on with the curlers in explaining this to the person next to them when they learned that their granddaughter's name was Trinity. She's like, oh, let me explain to you the Trinity and what that means according to the hypostatic union and the definition of Chalcedon. And there they are, talking in the beauty parlor. Common parlance that anyone can get. Here we go. Okay, so the Trinity. The word Trinity itself uh, has to do with the triune or the threefold nature of God. And a lot of people outside of Christianity... Uh, like to point out that this word is not in the Bible, in fact, and therefore they will say to us, well, that doctrine, therefore, is something you made up. We don't even see it in the creeds until the third and fourth centuries. It's just a farce that you use to prove your religion, bring people on Sunday, and collect an offering. In reality, Christ himself never spoke of himself this way, and neither do the church fathers or the gospels. It's something you made up to serve your purpose. And of course, we will say that's entirely untrue. And what I'd like to do to you today is prove it to you from first century writings. In other words, from the Gospel of John. From the very beginning, this is something that Christians have affirmed 
and believed. And of course, we didn't spell it out till later because we already knew it for ourselves. So, for example, when you have a babysitter come over and your children are at home, you know every night you've got to feed them dinner, you've got to bathe them, you've got to brush their teeth. You know which toothbrush is whose, even though they're the exact same um, Lego characters, you know which one goes to who, and you know who gets what pajamas and what bed to sleep in and who gets which stuffy. You know. You don't have to spell that out. You and your wife do it every night, and therefore you've got this whole thing figured out. Well, when a babysitter comes over, however, and they don't know the routine, they don't know what you know by heart without even thinking about it, you make a list for them and you say, okay, we believe it like, we do it like this, but not like this. This boy gets this shampoo, this boy gets this toothpaste, and then this guy likes this snack, and this guy likes this snack, and then you read them each one of their favorite books, you tuck them in like this and give this stuffy to this stuff person and this stuffy to the other one, and then turn out the lights, go out the door, lock it, and hope you don't hear anything after that okay that's the way it works you spell it out for them well so too when all of a sudden these um heretics come along and for their own purposes begin to um, teach things that are different than the gospel and they will say well you know jesus christ is fully god but he's not fully man or he's fully man but he's not fully god or he became god at one point in time or actually, he's a little bit of both. He's kind of intertwined and mixed up, and he's something different, something other. And the Christians are going to say, no, 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 no. That's totally wrong. That's completely different than anything we've affirmed. Let us spell it out for you. We've always believed this. We've always worshipped him. We gather on account of him. We believe in his resurrection. We believe in his incarnation. We believe in his return. So let us spell it out for you. And that's what these creeds or these things like the definition of Chalcedon do. It's a big fancy word, but basically it's a place where they met. It would be like the definition of Chilliwack. And people then would think, boy, Chilliwack, that's a weird word, you know? No offense. But it's not a word I'd heard until I moved to this area. I've never heard of Chilliwack. What is a Chilliwack? It's not in my dictionary. But here it is, Chalcedon, Chilliwack, whatever, it's a group of people that got together and they defined it and they spelled it out because these other people were messing it up and didn't really get it, but it's something we've affirmed all the way along. Amen? You with me? Okay, so this is the way the creeds move and this is basically what they say. So now what we're going to do is we're going to define it. We're going to say, what is the Trinity? <coughs> Christians, by their very nature, from the very beginning, even before there was Jesus Christ, are what we call monotheist. <clears throat> In other words, we believe that there is one God. Mono is one, Theo is God, we believe in one God. That is essential to the Christian religion. We have always believed this. There is nothing new in this whatsoever. From the very beginning of God's first disclosure and revelation to him, to us in Deuteronomy 6.4, if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. This is an important verse. The Lord God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord God is one. Okay? Let me spell it out for you. There's a lot of um, polytheists and pagans and animists and all sorts of other creation worshipers rather than creator worshipers and all sorts of made-up religions and crazy, hokey, spooky-dooky things. But when it all comes down to it, the bottom line is, there is one God. One. And so this is the first declaration that God makes in his law to his people. It says, look, you've got to understand, despite what anyone else around you believes, 
we're totally unique in that we affirm that there is only one God. Just one. And obviously that has huge implications. Especially for us missionally as a church. So we think about what is our job? What should we do? Why are we here? Well, if they're worshiping a different God, what does that mean? What does that imply? They've got the wrong one. We've got the right one, right? Jesus is the only God. And this revelation begins early in history, moving forward towards that point. And so God spells it out for him and says, look, there's only one God. From the very beginning, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Isaiah 45 says this. I don't need to beat it into the ground, but 45 verses 21 through 22 says, Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. That's pretty clear, I'd say. He spells it out. There is only one God. This is the reason we're not polytheists. This is the reason we're not pagans. This is the reason we're not Hindu. This is the reason we're not animist. This is the starting point of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the very beginning, the foundation of Christianity. You must stand on this pillar, and if you do not, you fall off, and you're no longer in our camp. It is heretical to say anything other than this. There is only one God. Even when you try to explain the Trinity, you have to say, there is only one God. There is only one God. Now the next thing we say, where it gets a bit muddy to some, is that the Father is God. Agreed? Agreed? The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. All three persons of the Trinity are fully God. Yet there is one God. So three who's one what? You can write that down if you need to. Three who's, one what? Three who's, three persons, one God. All right? So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Spirit. We're going to move into Jesus fairly quickly. And the reason for that is, yes, the Spirit exists. Yes, He is valuable. But the way it works in, revelation, in, in the progressive revelation of God in the Bible is that in the Old Testament, He's this nebulous, um, sort of unseen figure. In the New Testament, after Jesus ascends and sends, he ascends and then he sends the Holy Spirit. Then this person of the Trinity becomes more well known act, uh, and actually more clearly visible to us. He was active before. It wasn't that he wasn't active. But now he's a very real and constant presence in our lives rather than something that goes and comes in a sort of mystical and mysterious way. So the Spirit is God, and where we get that is in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 in particular. And that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, two characters, husband and wife, who decide to lie to the church fathers, the early apostles, and they say to them, hey, we actually gave this whole amount. And they're like, did you really give the whole amount? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, no, you didn't. And now you're going to die. And they did. And they died. And the reason they died is that the Apostle Peter says, you've lied not to man, not to us, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when he says, you've lied to God, the Holy Spirit, it makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is God. And so the Apostle Peter affirms in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, that the Spirit is God. 
So what I've said so far, I know I sometimes talk kind of fast. You can ask me questions afterwards or replay the sermon, but here's the deal. The, there's one God. The Father is God, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Spirit is God, Acts 5.3. And now we move to the fact that the Son is God, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Now, this part about being fully God and fully man is absolutely essential to your faith. He is not God in a bot. That's what Apollinarius said, and he was condemned as a heretic. He is not God in a strange bot or anything like that. He is, in fact, fully God and fully man. 100% both forever united now in what is called the God-man. It is necessary because Jesus cannot save that which he is not. In order to save you, he has to become you. Okay, so he is fully God, satisfying God's righteousness, and fully human, satisfying God's wrath. Okay, fully God and fully man. Now, so far what we've said then is that there is one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But although there is one God, there is one what, there are three who's. And among the who's, they are, and I will explain this in just a little bit, that they are different persons. So the Father is not the Son, Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. It works in a diagram or a form a bit like this. This is a diagram that sort of represents what I'm trying to say. If you Google the Trinity or if you look in Wikipedia, you will see something like this. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father. But there is one God. Now, perhaps this is something cool that I just drew up the last few minutes. No, of course not. We've been saying it like this for a long, long, long time. There are pictures of this that date way back in church history. I think we have another picture somewhere coming up here. Yeah, this goes back a long, long way. So this is the Trinity is not a new thing. It's not something we came up with. It's something the Christians have believed from the very beginning. So then, where do we find that? Let's look together now at John chapter 1. I've done my best to define it for you, but now we're going to uh, prove it. So we're going to look at the Bible, an early first century document from 90 AD, and we're going to prove it. Where is it that we can come up with all these fancy formulas and sayings, basically meaning we worship one God, three persons, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. What we're going to do this morning is we are going to focus on the Son. And the reason for that is this. is Obviously, I think that's, that's a large emphasis of Scripture is to focus on the Son. But also because um, what happens is when you consider other world religions, you're, you can ask basically two questions. How many gods and is Jesus it? And if there's multiple gods, you throw it out. Obviously, that's not it. And if there's one God, then you say, okay, we affirm one God too. But the trouble is that the um, Jews and Muslim faith also affirm one God. And so then you can ask a very easy question that separates you from all the other world religions and cults and the like, is say, okay, so then who is God? Who is that person? Is Jesus God? And if the answer is not that Jesus is God, well then, it's wrong. And you've instantly put yourself in a much more narrower 
category. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the Holy Spirit. Mormons, they deny the deity of Jesus. You've just knocked out two major cults. Talk about Judaism, they deny Jesus. Islam, they deny Jesus. Hinduism, they're polytheists. They affirm multiple gods. Therefore, boom, we've just done away with all of those. It's a separating, fundamental, defining feature of your faith. Who are you and what do you believe? You affirm the Trinity. Where do we find it? John chapter 1. Everybody with me so far? Rolling. Okay, here we go. John chapter 1, before I read it, I'm just going to read a few verses. But um, what I want to do is sort of set it in context for you. Because every text, every portion of Scripture has a context. And what's interesting is that each of the Gospel writers, just like you and me, just like everyone else in the world, have different personalities. And what you'll see in their writings is that their personalities actually show up. The Holy Spirit guides them, just like he guides you and me, but he doesn't stomp on them and stamp them out. He allows them to be them. And each of the writers are going to express their viewpoints regarding Christ in different ways. So, for example, all of the other writers, they're going to be a little bit more um, developmental. In other words, they're not going to tell you the end at the very beginning. They're going to play coy. They're going to say, okay, we have a point to communicate, but rather than just state it directly up front, we're going to lead you down this primrose path, and we're going to tell our story like this. So what Matthew does is Matthew is a Jewish Jew, right? He really wants to emphasize the Jewish nature of Jesus, and so he wants to communicate Jesus' kingship. And so in order to do that, you have to prove the royal line. So Matthew starts with, a genealogy, so that he can develop the royal blood of the heir to the throne of David. And he starts and he goes down this track and says, look, all of a sudden there's this guy that's born, and look who his parents were, and his grandparents. Wow, and if you go back further than that, look at this. And he begins to tell the story, and you start saying, wow, I wonder what this means. Very interesting. Perhaps the king is born. Perhaps an heir to the throne. He's of the royal line of David. He's from the right house. What does this mean? And you follow the story through Matthew. And you follow and you learn and you watch as he's welcomed into the city and the people cry out, Hosanna! Glory to God. Glory in the highest. Welcome. Come in, the new king. And then you look at the next story, the gospel writer Mark. Now Mark's a little bit more terse. He's more concise. He's a little bit more to the point. So he doesn't have this long genealogy to start with, but instead he just starts out with this strange, shadowy, prophetic figure. And all of a sudden there's this guy screaming at people and saying, repent, turn or burn. And there's, he comes out of the wilderness. He wears strange clothes. He eats strange foods. And he's having him be baptized and making a path for this new figure who's even greater than he. Well, who is this? What's going on here? Then Luke comes along and he wants to set out an orderly account because he's a physician and he wants things nice and clear and systematic and in order. And so he says, we're going to do it like this. And he sets out a very historical, chronological, detailed, intentional development. And then finally, there's this other Yahoo who I tend to identify with a lot by the name of John. And he's like, look, I'm not going to beat around the bushes with you folks. 
We're not going to be tricky about anything. I just want to tell you straight from the start. This guy, Jesus, he's God. Okay? He's God. So let's just have our cards flat out on the table and be clear about it. Every story you read in my book, it's going to point to the same thing, that Jesus is God. That's the whole point of my book. In fact, I'm writing this to convince you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. So let's just say it. Jesus is God. And that's the way John starts his book. And so when you begin this book of John, you don't begin with any of those other routes. Instead, you begin with what theologians or fancy people will call a prologue, or basically an introductory section to his book. And that's what we're going to look at today. He just starts out at the very beginning, and he takes this Greek concept called the word, and he, call, and he associates it with Jesus, and he says to these Greek readers, hey, look, I want you to know, here's what I think about Jesus. So that every incident you come across, every teaching he gives, every event will be interpreted in light of this. This is the foundational statement regarding Christ. It's one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. This one will separate you from any other cult and world religion if you can affirm these few verses. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read you verse 1 through 4, and then I'm going to read verse 14. And in those verses, I'm going to pull out three words which should change your life and solidify your faith. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, skipping down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The three words today that I want to point out to you, I think, are these. And I want you to uh, perhaps write them down if they're not already in your bulletin. They are very big fancy words. Was, with, and became. Was, with, and became. You can define the hypostatic union by these three words. You can say what it means to be a Christian with these three words. You can define the very essence and nature of the person and deity of Christ with these words. In other words, you can say it, Mr. Was with became. Mr. Was with became. Here's what I mean. The first word, was. Uh, the very first thing that John says is, in the beginning was the word. That's exactly right. In the beginning was the word. Now, some of those words, here's a trick question for me. Some, some of those words sound fairly familiar. Where have you heard those before? Genesis, exactly right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In other words, get ready to expand your minds a little bit. 
Before there was time, before there was space, before there were lights to rule the day or stars to rule the night, before there was anything that is, before anything ever was, God. In other words, before the space-time continuum even existed, when there was no matter, when there was no material, when there was nothing, God was. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now here, in the opening chapters of John, John says the very same thing about Jesus. He says, in the beginning, the eternal, pre-flesh, or pre-incarnate, pre-human, pre-physical, when there just was nothing else, there was Jesus. In the beginning, Jesus. The Word was. The Word was. In the beginning was Jesus. So, in other words, whoever this character is that I'm about to tell you about, he's eternal. In the same way that God is. He's always existed. And that means either one of two things. One, that he is God. Or two, that there's more than one God out there. And John would never say anything like that. He would never affirm some sort of cosmic dualism. There is only one eternal being. Even Satan, the most powerful force of darkness himself, is a created being. So Satan was not in the beginning. Only God was. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word is eternal. First thing about it. Next time you see the word was is at the end of the verse. And, it's, and he's going to say, okay, I'm going to spell it out for you. The word was God. Okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So, the Word that we're talking about is eternal, and it is deity. The Word was eternal deity. Now, the next thing that it says, the next important word is with. With. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Yet the Word was God. How does that work? I think a little illustration will help here. You've been doing very well hanging on to this mind-blowing experiment. But let us now give a very real illustration from everyday life. High school was a little while ago for me, over 20 years. And yet I can still remember some of the strongest memories. So, for example, in my high school, I went to a Baptist parochial school, or a Baptist church school, and so there was no prom We didn't have a dance, but what we did was the Baptist thing and had a banquet, you know. The dancing people are much healthier and lighter. The Baptists are, well, you know how Baptists are, right? Because we can't dance, we can't move, but we can't eat. So, hey, let's eat. So, we had a banquet, and in the same way that you have pressure to go with someone to a dance, you have pressure to go with someone to a banquet, And so the question then becomes, I think, for both girls and guys, is who am I going to go with? I have to have someone to be with. And so the nerves began a few weeks before, and everyone's kind of concerned. And and as not necessarily the most popular or handsome guy in the class, this is how things typically went for me. Oh, boy. (laughs) Got to get a date. (laughs) What am I going to do? Well, 
There are 30 people in my class. Not all of them are girls. Here we go. <laughs> all right, which one do I want to go with? Susie. Okay, Susie. Susie, phone number? Good. All right, let's give it a try. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, Susie. Yeah, this is Jeremy. Hi. How's it going? Uh-huh. Pretty good. Uh, well, I, what's the weather like at your place right now? Right. You're rainy. Mine too. Okay. Well, I was just wondering if you want to go to the dance with me this Friday. Yeah. You got to wash your hair? Right. Hygiene's important. I get that. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, take care. Man. Wait a minute. Betty. Okay. Ring, 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 ring. And down through the list you go until finally someone says yes. And then you can go to the dance because why? You are with someone. And therefore you are not alone. You may be totally united with them in spirit. You may agree with them in every way. You may, as a married couple later on, act practically as one. And yet you are fundamentally distinct from them. You are with that person. You are together as a couple at the banquet, but you are different from them. You are with them. And that is what the word with is trying to communicate. Through all of my silly illustrations aside, the point is to say that there is relational distinction within the Trinity. So how can there be one God and three persons? Because Jesus is with God. He is relationally distinct from. He's united with. He shares all this same attributes. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is om omniscient. He knows everything. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere at the same time. And you even see these in Scripture. You see Jesus exercising these abilities. But, although he is all those things, and he is God, he is still relationally distinct from the Father. So he submits to the Father. He is sent by the Father. And he's different from the Spirit, because when he leaves, then the Spirit comes. And you see this at the baptism of Christ and several other places as well, that there are relational distinctions within the single unified deity. So that's heady, but if you can at least remember the date thing, here's how we move forward. The, the Trinity is one, one what, three who's. They are relationally distinct. So Jesus was God, yes, but he is relationally distinct from the Father. One God, three persons. Was and with. Now that's pretty cool. That's great. That's a nice, heady theological lesson. And if we leave it at that, that alone is enough to cause us to worship Christ. He's God. And He is a member of the Trinity. Therefore, He fully merits and earns and deserves our worship. But the problem is that we are sinful, fallen human beings, dead in our trespasses and sins, and rightly condemned before Him. As a result, God, who is completely independent of us, who exists in and of Himself with no need for anything else, could simply have obliterated the human race, wiped out the stars and the heavens and the earth, and said, okay, never mind then. No big deal, nothing lost. 
I'm still here. I'm still good. I've always been. I always will be. That was a waste of time, but time doesn't really matter to me anyways. So there they go. We're done. But we know that the character of God and the heart of God and the compassion of Christ is entirely different than that. Yes, he could do that because he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship. He's not longing for us to make himself feel better. He simply is. But because he is good, because he is kind, because he is compassionate and gracious towards us, he condescends to make himself known. And this is what you have then in the incarnation or the becoming flesh, is God coming down to make himself known to us. And so we leave verses 1 through 4, which explain the grandeur and magnitude of God, and we come to this incredibly gracious verse of verse 14, where this eternal, preexistent, huge, way out there God all of a sudden invades our space-time continuum. And as a result, verse 14 says, And the word which was became. The word not only was, but the word is. The word is with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have actually seen God's glory. Glory as of the only, because there is only one, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here he is, the eternal, pre-incarnate, ever-existent God himself, who needs nothing else and exists totally outside of us, all of a sudden became one of us. The word was, the word was with, and now, can you believe it? The word actually became. The word became flesh, fully human. And if you have any question about that, just read the gospel narrative. And all of a sudden you see this little Jesus who's a baby. All of deity wrapped up in this tiny little spongy, squishy, burping, pooping ball of flesh. There he is. And not only is a baby, but then all of a sudden he has to grow just like us. He learns what it is to be contained and not ever expansive and omnipresent, but instead to come into being. He's never come into being. He always was. And yet now in human flesh, he is becoming. He's growing. And Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom and favor with God and man. He became. He grew. And not only did he grow, but he actually got hungry. And he got tired. And he got thirsty. And he wept. And he mourned. And he felt exhausted. Just like you and me. Because we don't have a high priest who's never been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Instead, one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, who was, became. And he experienced life just like we do. Just like we do. And we can sit here and say, yeah, I carry an iPhone, and I drive in a car, and I look at the internet and read this and read that. That ain't my life. But the reality is, is you still hurt, he hurt. You've experienced trauma, he's experienced trauma. You've been isolated, he's been isolated. You've been rejected, he's been rejected. You've been betrayed, he was betrayed. 
same way, only worse for him. Because we actually deserve it. Maybe not by the one who did it to us, but in no way can we claim to be perfect. No, no one deserves to be raped. No one deserves to be hurt in horrible ways like that. But the point is, we're all guilty. And the only one who's not, who can actually and truly say that this is unfair, is Christ himself. And yet he is the one who experienced all of that. Jesus hurt more than any of us ever even imagined. The word was, the word is, and the word became. He became flesh. For even though he was in the very nature of God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. And so he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found just like a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even unto the very worst possible death that humanity has ever come up with, even to death on the cross. Therefore, as a result of his submission to the Father within the relational distinction of the Trinity, the Father rightly exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord God Almighty, exalted above all others. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God for His absolutely indescribable gift. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of His nature. The Word is, the Word was, and the Word will be. Mr. Was with became. Was with became. Eternal, distinct, and made flesh. Christians affirm the Trinitarian, monotheistic, hypostatic union according to the definition of Chalcedon. We affirm that there is one God in three persons. Father is God. Son is God. Spirit is God. All three are fully God, but they are not each other. Yet there is one God. The Word was. The Word is. The Word will be. That is the Trinity. On all of this, your faith rises or falls. So why does it matter? Well, let me explain it to you then. Basically, I'm going to give you four reasons um, how we apply this. Okay? Four reasons how you can apply this to your life. What difference does it make? That was a cool lecture, Pastor. Thank you. What difference does it make? The difference is this. First of all, as already been alluded to, it distinguishes your faith. This sets you apart from all other world religions. Why are you not Sikh? Why are you not Hindu? Why are you not Buddhist? Why are you not Mormon? Why are you not animist? Polytheist? Whatever. Because you affirm the Trinity. The Trinity is a great name for the church. You drive down the road and you see Trinity such and such church. Trinity such and such church. That sets you apart from Unitarians. That sets you apart from um, Universalists. That sets you apart from everything else. You affirm the Trinity. It defines your faith. First, so first of all, it defines your faith. It, it brings it in to focus. Second of all, it forms the foundation of your faith. Look, what are you here to do this morning? Worship Jesus, right? If Jesus is not God, there's no point in worshiping him. Why are you worshiping him? Because he saves you. 
But he cannot save you if he did not become you. Romans chapter 5. He's not an acceptable sacrifice. He paid your price because he could. He was the you that you should have been. He was perfect. You're not, so you can't. Jesus was, and so he did. He became you. It's absolutely essential that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He forms the foundation of your faith. The reason you're here this morning, the reason you're not lost, is because of the dual nature or the hypostatic union of Jesus. Finally, it guides my interaction. Number three, I'll give you one more, four total. It guides my interaction. It should guide your interaction with God, and it should guide your interaction with others. Well, how does, it guide, how does the Trinity guide my interaction with God? You can't interact with God were it not for the Trinity. You pray through the power of the Spirit to the Father, and you're allowed to go there because of the blood of the Son. You cannot approach God without the Trinity. This is the path, the bridge that gets you there. When you commune with God, you do so in the power of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the blood of the Son, giving worship and praise and adoration to God the Father who makes it all possible. All of your communication with God happens via the route of the Trinity. So when you pray, think about that. Hey, look, I want to pray in the power of the Spirit, Lord, and I know that I can come to you, God, on the fact that your Son, who is fully God and fully man, has completely paid my price, satisfied the debt that I owe, and made it possible for me to approach the throne of the most infinite holy being there is. Now I can move into the presence of God. Now I can receive the forgiveness of sins. Now I can worship. Now I can have peace. Now I can trust in the plan that God has for me. Because I have the Trinity. Now when you worship like that, it will change your worship. When you pray like that, it will change your prayer. When you read the Bible like that, it will change your, your spiritual walk with God. Because of the Trinity. And then you look at this Trinity and you say, wow, what a cool relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the way it always works in my family. <laughs> it's more like, hey, get downstairs, get your clothes on, it's time for church. Come on, get out the door, wash your hands, don't hit your brother, give it back. Eden, you have to change your diaper. No, you can't roll over off the table. Hold still, wait. Hang on, honey, I'm coming. <laughs> yeah, that's what our interaction can be like. You don't see that among the Trinity, do you? you see perfect harmony. The Father feels for his people, and so he sends the Son, and the Son willingly submits to the Father, and throughout his entire life he says, not my will, but yours. May you be glorified. May you come first. May your will be done. Even though this is going to be really bad for me and I know exactly what's coming, may your will be done because I will sacrifice everything I am on your behalf. Holy smokes. Would that change your relationships? Yeah, I think so. If we loved one another like the Father, Son, and the Spirit do to each other, what a difference that would make. Perfect harmony perfect unity, complete sacrifice. The Father sacrifices of himself as well. Who wants to send their son to the cross? Not me. Oh, no. I would never want to do that. Yeah, the Father did that for you. Did you deserve it? I don't think so. Did I? No way. People would betray him, spit at him, sin and not just the people that did it, but we who do it every single day when we disregard what he has for us. 
And yet, the Father sent the Son. That's sacrifice. That's a sacrifice we should do for others. Like the Father sacrifices the Son, like the Son submits himself to the Father, and like the Spirit submits himself to the Son. The Son leaves and the Son says to the Spirit, go, and he goes. Wouldn't you rather stay in heaven? I sure would. Get down here in the dirty muck and mire of our lives, have to live in these sin-infested you know, suits and walk around with us, and he sits here and tells us to do one thing and we do another all day long? That doesn't sound like a very fun job. I want people to listen to me where I work. I want them to respect me. I want them to you know, actually hear what I have to say. And yet so many times we shut out the Spirit and say, I'm not interested in going somewhere else. And over and over again, He comes back, knocking our door, pounding on our hearts, saying, come on, listen, please. The Son sent me, so I'm here for you, to walk with you, empower you, equip you, deliver you, save you, heal you, strengthen you, bless you, encourage you. Please, let me do my job. And there He is. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells us. Praise be to God for the Trinity. The Trinity which defines our religion. The Trinity which controls our relationship. The Trinity which means everything to our faith and forms the very foundation. Where would we be without this? There is simply no Christianity. There's no Trinity. There's no God. There's no Trinity. There's no hope. There's no encouragement. There's no salvation. There's no worship. There's no spirit. There's nothing without the Trinity. This is the very firm foundation of our faith. What difference does it make? Everything hangs and falls on this. The Word was, the Word is, and the Word will be. And here's where we get hope. That not only was Mr. was with, not only did he become, but he will also come again. There's a fourth word that's not in this passage, but it's in others, and that is he will return in the same way in which he's left. And then all of this mess and muck and mire that we live in will be fixed. No more need for firefighters, no more need for policemen, no more need for army, war, no more need for doctors, no more need for anything else. There is only one God, and Jesus is his name. And he will reign above all else, and no one will contest it. And all will be made well when the Son returns. For the Word was, the Word is, and the Word will be. Mr. Wasworth became, and Mr. Wasworth will come again. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, you're such a good and gracious God, and oh Lord, how amazing, how wonderful and beautiful and great to see your only begotten Son the King, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the eternal preexistent one, actually come and take on flesh, sacrifice himself for our sins, and raise from the dead. We praise you, Lord, for who you are and for who he is. So thankful that he came, that he always was, and even better, God, that he will come again. So that, Lord, when he returns, we will look forward to his great face, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, his name written on him that no other name knows but himself. And his name is the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.